The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm Monday morning welcome to Squawkbox live from Glasgow and London. These are your headlines. Countries agree to phase down the use of coal in a last-minute compromise at COP26. Underwhelming some expectations, but the COP26 president, Alex Sharma, defends the deal. I apologise for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. Beijing and New Delhi blocking efforts to include a phase out of coal in the final agreement as India's environment minister says fossil fuels are key to growth. Developing countries have a right to their fair share of the global carbon budget and are entitled to the responsible use of fossil fuels within this scope. Developing countries have still to deal with their development agendas and poverty eradication. Chinese consumer data remains strong in October as retail sales jump more than expected, while industrial output also beat expectations. Presidents Biden and Xi prepared to hold a virtual meeting later today. Taiwan is set to be a key issue. As COVID spikes in Europe, a three-week partial lockdown triggers violent protests in the Netherlands while unvaccinated Austrians are ordered to stay at home. Elsewhere, the Emirates president tells CNBC he's worried about a COVID resurgence stemming from the continent. I see a fourth wave coming through um, and uh, we have all sorts of concerns about what may happen. So negotiators at the COP26 summit in Glasgow have compromised on a climate deal after talks extended into the weekend. It's the first climate agreement seeking to curb the use of fossil fuels but fails to keep rising temperature levels capped at 1.5 degrees Celsius. The agreement will see countries regroup next year to make further climate pledges. Meanwhile, a commitment to phase out coal was watered down to, quote, phase down to its use following pressure from India and China. Officials did, however, strike agreements on climate finance and new carbon market rules. Well, let's get out to Steve for more. Steve, phase down, not phase out of coal and some disappointing comments from Alok Sharma. Just walk us through the emotion, the reaction there at COP. Yeah, morning, Karen. Morning, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating scenes, really, in that final press conference where the COP26 president, Alex Sharma, who basically said he had slept six hours in 72, uh, had a bit of an emotional moment as well. Uh, was COP26 an unmitigated success or failure? No. Was it all blah, 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 as someone might say? Or was it truly historic and the death knell for coal, as UK Prime Minister uh, might say? Absolutely not. And, and somewhere in between is the truth, as is ever the case. And was it a binary solution? No. Was it a failure like 2000? 2009, the COP15 in many ways, no. Was it a success like COP21 in Paris? No. But again, as I say, there was something in between. But uh, the COP president, Alex Sharma, uh, gave a few words to CNBC talking about uh, what was achieved uh, at this meeting. There is certainly um, uh, uh, you know, more work to be done on this issue. There's no doubt about that. However, as I've set out, 
uh, you know, when we took on the on the on the role of the co-presidency, I said very clearly that I wanted us to try and consign coal power to history. Uh, and if at that time I'd said to you that you know here towards the end of this year at COP, we would have ensured that uh, all the biggest economies were no longer financing international coal projects, and we had managed to get the sort of agreement we have here, I think people would have been sceptical. Yes, of course, I want us to go further, I want us to go faster. Uh, but as I also said, um, you know, we, we have ensured uh, through the, the last two weeks is that there have been announcements in terms of supporting countries with a clean energy transition. Ten million pounds, uh, ten million dollars which was set out. Um, and so yeah, there, there's actually progress. Should we be going faster? Of course. That was Alex Sharma there in the, in the press conference. Of course, a lot of focus has come onto coal now. We can talk at length about coal, of course, and, and what has happened, what hasn't happened. But how many of us in our lifetime have used the word phase down? I would say not many of us as well. In fact, I don't really know what phase down means as opposed to phase out. Of course, phase out is more absolute. It's more we are going to get rid of this. Phase down uh, means something perhaps a little bit more intermediate and a bit more staggered as well. But again, the fact is, the matter is India was applauded, of course, in the first week when they were talking about their renewed NDC, nationally determined contribution, uh, and indeed the huge reduction they were talking about in fossil fuels uh, and indeed the, the, their contribution to CO2 emissions by 2030. So the change in the language, perhaps less important than actually what India and China have agreed to. We can revisit that in a few moments' time. Franz Timmermans, a man we spoke to a few times throughout this conference as well, uh, also made some comments uh, about the problems that emerging nations are having uh, getting rid of coal and what it will mean uh, for employment. But we have to make sure that we create futures for them, that we have a just transition, that we make sure that there are enough investments in new and other industries. That's a Herculean task, especially if you're also a developing country. So I have full understanding for that. So I think it's, it's historic that also these countries would now commit to, well, we call it to phase down coal, but phasing down coal means that at the end you won't have any coal anymore, and that's exactly where we need to be. Uh, and the point is, of course, about stages of development as well. It is the Western nations, the developed nations, who have created, what is it, 80% of the greenhouse gases uh, ever put onto the planet as well. So hence the emerging nations such as India saying, well, hang on a second, it's not necessarily our problem that we create this lifestyle. And now we're trying to catch up. We're trying to heat our homes. We're trying to power our economic growth as well. Uh, you're telling us not to go through uh, that same cycle as well. So let's listen into a little bit of what Bupenda Yadav had to say. Developing countries have a right to their fair share of the global carbon budget and are entitled to the responsible use of fossil fuels within this scope. In such a situation, how can anyone expect that developing countries can make promises about phasing out coal and fossil fuel subsidies? Developing countries have still to deal with their development agendas and poverty eradication. There you hear the Indian point of view on that from the environment minister there. So let's just go through this as well. Was it a complete failure? No. But was it a failure if you measure it by keeping 1.5% on track for the maximum increase in climate from pre-industrial levels? Well, the answer is yes, it would be a failure if you measured it by that. But were there measures that went forward during this that stopped it, prevented it from being just blah, 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 as indeed a well-known activist keeps saying about this conference? And I think there was a lot of progress as well. And I think there were some key issues here. 
Not least the fact that Sharm El Sheikh, i.e. COP27, is suddenly in play as a major international conference. As our viewers will know, I hope you know by now, that there is something called an NDC, which is a nationally determined contribution, which everybody has been uh, talking about this last two weeks, i.e. what is na- what our nation is doing on a, a nation-by-nation basis uh, to get to net zero at some stage, hopefully by 2050 in the case of developed countries, sometime thereafter uh, in the case of emerging countries. Now, these uh, NDCs were only due to be uh, re-examined every five years, the so-called ratchet effect, i.e. you improve on them on a regular basis. Now, an improvement in those nationally determined contributions is on the table uh, for uh, the next conference, which is in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt uh, at the tail end of next year as well. And that makes it very interesting, i.e. it's an annual process now rather than waiting for another big cop uh, in five years' time. And I think that's actually a, a very, very important point, that the pressure will remain on countries on a regular basis now as well. Other things that got less attention was carbon trading. The rules look like they're beginning to be put in place for carbon trading, which could unlock the trillions of dollars uh, that is needed to fund some form of transition. And that wasn't talked about an awful lot. And I think that was a a really important point. The other point, again, which tails into that is the fact that the private sector finance could well now be in place, given what we've seen with this 450 plus uh, alliance, so to speak, of institutions who, let's face it, are still funding to a certain degree fossil fuels. But hopefully that transition will pick up a place. We've talked a lot about some of the other measures on methane and deforestation, uh, on the phasing out or, or phasing down of coal as well. So is this a complete success, this conference? Absolutely not. Is it a complete failure? Absolutely not. Uh, if we measure it by 1.5 degrees C, then yes, you would have to say on a binary basis it's a failure. But I think there are a lot of perhaps building blocks in place that meant that actually this could well be uh, a good foundation for progress in the next 12 months. Jeff? Yes, and, that, and that's where I wanted to pick it up, Steve, because I think what you've, you've indicated here is that some important market signals have been sent and those signals suggest that we will continue in the direction of travel that has been uh, or has developed increasing momentum and that is that business itself companies themselves will be making decisions to roll back their own emissions and that i think is an important message and as you point out even as in the language there was the disappointment that this wasn't uh, coal that was being phased out it was coal being phased down what we did see is an attack on fossil fuel subsidies and clearly there was an important message about emissions targets and emissions reporting guidelines and I think that comes back to our core issue which is the policymakers need to set clear guidelines and provide the direction and then companies can understand the guidelines they can understand the rules they can understand the regulations and then they themselves can put money behind their own decisions as to how they're going to change their own business models to comply with these targets and the other just very quickly important message i think that you sent this question of who pays and ultimately have the emerging nations been cheated out of what they were due and what they thought they were promised at previous COP events. I think it is important this, glo- this, this um, financial alliance for net zero, which potentially could have significant heft thrown behind the transition. So I think as you say, there were some important, if you look below the headline of disappointment, there were some important initiatives, which I think for our key audience, 
do send further signals about how you need to move next over coming years to meet the ultimate uh, revised emissions target goals. Karen. Yeah, I just want to pick up on the disappointment angle first, because as you point out, it is the headline here. And you think about all the momentum, how many countries were producing these uh, fairly strong targets and at a company level, how much work we've seen from the CEOs that we speak to day in, day out. There's just a huge amount of momentum for change, but still this goal could not be achieved. And just a reminder how hard it is to try and achieve global change. I think there's been a lot of success lately on initiatives and corporation tax was one of the big ones. There was an accord there. I think there had been a lot of optimism that we would just progress on these climate change goals as well. But it does tell us how slowly some of these big initiatives do move. And in fact, we were talking about this around the set a few weeks ago, whether some of the change that we all hope for can be achieved as quickly as we want it to be practically if you think about the solutions that are not there yet. And I had a conversation with some big technology giants recently that, uh, you know, there's optimism that these solutions will be found. It will just take time. And that time is quite relevant to a lot of countries that are seeking to actually hit these targets. Just looking at through the lens of India, I think one of the positives is that we were looking at a country where there was sort of this unstoppable rise in consumption. Uh, many are looking at a very large population, 1.3 billion people, that are, are just thirsty for more and more energy. But those targets are going down from 70% of coal consumption at this point to 50% by 2030. So there are hopes of a turnaround. But perhaps if there is more progress on innovative solutions that, that can be rolled out on a large scale, that you do get that change. And I think one of the points that was made by the emerging market is that you know, they make up a lot of the production that is sent to the West. If that demand falls away from the West, then you do see potentially a fall in the emissions and the use of the energy in some of these EM countries, which does beg the question around the integrity of supply chain reporting. If there is a disclosure to the consumer that a product that is produced does create so many emissions and relies on so much use of coal, perhaps you eventually do get that change. And that happens at a business level too. So one of the other big features we're talking about at COP was this reporting standard. that We're not just getting greenwash uh, that a product is, you know, uh, net zero and something. That You do need to know what happens the entire way through the supply chain and the impact socially of a product and service that is produced these days. I think we are moving in the right direction when it comes to that. Steve? Yeah, I'm just going to make one more point, uh, and that is that the biggest geopolitical tension on the planet, of course, is between the United States and indeed China, who just happen to be the two largest emitters on this planet as well. If the two can build upon their cooperation agreement, which I think is actually quite interesting, uh, and actually build up pressure on each other, and, and of course we know they're inextricably linked in many, many ways, from treasuries to uh, their interests in the uh, Pacific Ocean as well, then that could be quite interesting as well. If they can actually enter some form of positive com- uh, competition uh, in order to reduce emissions a- as a block, then that would be very interesting. And let's see if there are words behind uh, the <coughs> Xi-Biden announcement that they can work together on this. Because let's face it, on a whole host of other issues, there is zero chance of China and the United States working together because of tensions that we talked about a lot on this channel. So I think that's another interesting area where there was a positive statement. But again, turning it from blah, 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 uh, as Greta Thunberg would say, into meaningful action, uh, that will be very interesting over the next 12 months. Terrific, Steve. We'll come back to you a little bit later on. Um, Let's move on. We take a look at the Chinese economy next. A bit of slew of fresh economic data. For more of our COP26 follow-up and continued coverage of various sectors and businesses as they look to implement their climate pledges, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squatbox. Let's just uh, walk you through the markets here and talk about some of the things you need to bear in mind as we get into a fresh trading week. We obviously closed out uh, last week in positive fashion and it was a better overall tone to the US equity markets uh, for the week as a whole. But there are some things that you need to just bear in mind here. The um, uh, Bank of America survey showed analysts uh, effectively uh, saw 75% of US companies beating earnings estimates on the third quarter. But there was a, a little poison pill in that survey Forecasts for the fourth quarter are essentially flat now as a result of uh, uh, how the analysts see earnings progressing through the fourth quarter of this year. And ultimately, that is the first break in rising expectations that we have seen for a year here. So it shows that the professionals are tempering their view on the earnings momentum we've seen post the COVID bump, if you like. Some of that to do with the inflationary pressures and concerns that consumers are not going to pay, but companies are ultimately going to have to take the higher prices uh, in the form of margin impact. Let's have a look at the treasuries because the, the other reason I think that we might have some tempered enthusiasm, enthusiasm around equity markets is that we ultimately had a, an 11 basis point bump in yields across the uh, trading week last week on rising expectations that the Federal Reserve may have to respond to some of these higher price pressures. And let me single out the 10-year note in particular here, which still sits at this one, this one spot 5.5 level here, just showing that the market is continuing to focus on the risks around underestimating, if you like, what the Federal Reserve is signaling at this point in terms of interest rate expectations. But the important thing about these rising rate views in the market is that they have underpinned the dollar. So if we look at the greenback here, the uh, dollar uh, ultimately um, hanging on to uh, its strength. In fact, we've seen the the best uh, dollar performance in three weeks here on expectations that the dollar now enjoys something of a speculative yield advantage. I also want to throw into uh, the mix here the oil story because we're going to take you to Adipec and we're going to catch up on some of the important conversations that are being had around the oil price at the moment. But we're a little easier on the headline print. A couple of reasons for that. One is the chart that I just showed you, which is the greenback. Higher dollar inevitably means it's more painful to buy your oil and take some of the momentum out of the oil. But the other is, um, is President Biden actually going to dip into the strategic reserve and put more oil on the market. And that's another reason perhaps why we've just seen this easing back on headline energy prices. So what about Asia? Some interesting data points uh, around Asia, and we're going to get to those in just a second. One is obviously the Chinese data, which I think most people would accept came in better than expectations, particularly on the retail sales side, which shows there is some momentum. But there was, um, again, just a, a worrying number around the new home prices, which maybe suggests that 
there is a, a, a lack of confidence at the moment around the chi Chinese housing market. And I think we all understand the reasons why that might be the case. And we had some Japanese growth data that suggests that actually the Japanese economy isn't doing quite as well as some might have expected. Um, in terms of the opening calls for Europe here, Let's just show you what the board looks like at the moment with that positive follow-through that we've had from the uh, uh, Asian session this morning. We're effectively looking very flat at the moment on the European Open. There may be some COP26 hangover disappointment. We'll have to wait and see. Um, Christine Lagarde will be speaking in the European Parliament today, so you know that everybody will be just keeping a weathered eye on that to see if there's any change in the narrative around the ECB keeping rates lower for longer and being prepared to run inflation hotter before they act. So something else just to put on your agenda for the day ahead. Karen. Jeff, I want to pick up on that point around inflation because we all keep thinking it's going to self-correct at some point. But a warning from Janet Yellen as the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that inflation levels may not reduce until the country deals with the pandemic. In an interview with CBS, Yellen said the rising prices of goods, such as those used in cars and petrol, should start to ease next year if COVID is brought under control. This says the White House explores ways to mitigate supply chain bottlenecks and port delays. But President Biden's spending bill has been criticised by some Republican lawmakers as a potential fuel to inflation. Meanwhile, the White House economic adviser, Brian Deese, has echoed Yellen's comments, telling NBC's Meet the Press that dealing with the pandemic remains a priority. There's no doubt inflation is high right now. It's affecting Americans' pocketbooks. It's affecting their outlook. Uh, and that's a problem we have to deal with. But it's important that we put this in context. When the president took office, we were facing an all-out economic crisis. 18 million people were collecting unemployment benefits. 3,000 people a day were dying of COVID. We have to finish the job on COVID. We have to return to a sense of economic normalcy by getting more workplaces COVID-free, getting more kids vaccinated so more parents feel comfortable going to work. It does suggest the forecasting is more difficult and Japan demonstrating that today. We saw the economy shrinking more than expected in the third quarter, contracting 3% on the year versus expectations of just a 0.8%. This is the global supply chain crisis continues to batter the country's export-oriented economy. President Joe Biden will hold a virtual summit with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping today. It will be the pair's first substantial meeting of Biden's presidency. The officials have quashed suggestions that it's a summit and have sought to dial back expectations. Well, this is the macro picture is less upbeat. However, a spokesperson for the National Bureau of Statistics has told reporters that stagflation is beginning to show the world's second largest economy is uh, there. This is the pace of retail sales and industrial output growth increased in the third quarter, though the property sector remains a headwind. Well, let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, a uh, big focus on the economy, but also this meeting between Xi and Biden and what that could yield in terms of economic support. 
Good morning to you, Karen. Yeah, and just to connect the dots there between the data we got today and the markets, of course, as you say, it really seems to be about the macro outlook now because while we did get this better than expected performance when it came to manufacturing and consumption, economists still uh, do see the economy slowing down uh, over the next few months and into 2022, particularly as there are these uh, very serious concerns around the property sector at the moment and also as Beijing is very much maintaining this zero COVID approach in the lead up to this uh, 20th Party Congress. There are also some concerns about the risk of stagflation as these uh, producer prices in China have been running uh, very hot and there has been some suggestion that that gives the PBOC certainly limited room to uh, ease policy and you know lower things like interest rates. So that's perhaps why we are seeing some of that weakness in the markets today despite uh, really China's uh, economic activity uh, defying these uh, expectations of a broad slowdown today because of those retail sales and that industrial output perhaps offering a little bit of relief uh, to markets elsewhere, but also this slowdown in the Chinese economy, uh, certainly as the policy response has been uh, so far fairly restrained. Uh, those retail sales, there are a couple of reasons behind that. One is said to be uh, really they benefited from those discounts ahead of Singles Day, which of course took place next week, as we know that those retailers do start to slash those prices uh, pretty early on in October. But they also gained uh, certainly from that big national holiday that we saw at the start of the month golden week which was thing good thing for things like catering and accommodation but i would like to caveat uh, that 4.9 percent is uh, nowhere near the numbers we're used to seeing in china and that perhaps goes to show that it could be a bumpy ride when we talk about this transition to a consumption-led recovery thank you for listening to squawk box europe express for more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with jeff cutmore steve sedgwick and karen show weekdays on cnbc